Amen. Thank you, Bubba. Well, good morning. Whew. All right, last day of the year. Happy, happy Christmas. They say in Britain, happy Christmas. So I, I still, I spent some time there. We did, so I still say that sometimes. Merry Christmas and happy new year almost to you. Uh, man. So one thing I want to announce, I guess, right now, and then I'll get into it. Uh, it'll sort of be a way of introducing why I chose Psalm 1 this morning, and then I'll start preaching, um, is we are going to have on the back table starting next week um, sort of weekly Bible read-through schedule, and what we want to do is we want to read through the Bible together as a, as a church, as a church body, as a congregation this year. Um, I'll talk about why some in my sermon, but it's, it's probably the most important thing for my spiritual life I've ever done is just having that daily time with the Lord and then reading through the scriptures uh, once a year, starting about 10 or 12 years ago, and just as a sort of baseline. And so there's an app called, I would just encourage you, whether you download it now or after the gathering, um, again, starts, we're going to start tomorrow, um, but it's called, read, it's called Read Scripture. That's uh, if you're searching for the app, Read Scripture. There's a, a company or an organization called The Bible Project, and they do, some of you have seen it, we've used some of their videos and stuff in the past, but they have... Uh, a, like a seven-minute video or so that's animated and really well done for each book of the Bible to introduce it and tell you what it's about. And then they have theme videos as well to sort of punctuate the scriptures and tell you what are the major themes in the Bible. And they embed those videos in this app um, along the way at appropriate points in the Bible reading. And so I just, as a church, want to take that adventure together to start reading through the scriptures together and try it this year and maybe, maybe it'll be an, become an annual thing if you're already, it's, it's, there's no compulsion, right? So if you're already loving what you're doing, keep doing it. Um, but if, if you're looking for uh, something to do to spend time with the Lord, then we'd love to, I mean, jump on this train and ride it with us. I'm going to be doing it. And it'll be a neat way, too, of knowing that a lot of people in this church body will be reading through the same parts of Scripture day to day, week to week, month to month. And so our conversation, as we'll get into in Psalm 1, it talks about this can be meditating day and night, talking about uh, what God is telling us in his word, what he's doing in our hearts through it daily and weekly together. So um, read scripture app. In light of that, uh, I wanted to preach on Psalm 1, which is really, it's a psalm on the blessed man and how is he characterized. He's characterized by loving and delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night. And we'll talk more about that. But I had, uh, just by way of disclaimer, I had... Uh, took off Monday through Wednesday of this week and then spent Thursday and Friday preparing a sermon. It was not this sermon, though. It was Psalm 51. And as I started to think about the fact that I want to launch into this Bible reading thing together, I thought, you know what? Maybe it's that time in Psalm 51 was just for me, and I'll file it away, and who knows when God will have me bring it out. It's a psalm of confession, um, and it was good for me. There's always time for, for confession. Um, and so that was really good for me, but I feel like Psalm 1 is for us today. So what we're going to do is it's going to be, a, this is a living room, unplugged. There are a lot of things different today. Anna's here. Paul's taking a break because his baby. I'm preaching sort of off the cuff, as it were, but uh, I, love, I love this psalm. I know it well, and I'm looking forward just to kind of walking through it together. I think more than one person here actually has house slippers on. It feels like a house slippers Sunday. It's the last day of the year, the low-key Sunday. In Britain, um, a lot of churches still worship on Sunday nights as well. I have a separate gathering, and it's a separate sermon, and it's more casual, and the Brits, if they wear the Bubba jacket, the, the, the blazer on Sunday morning, they'll wear the sweater on Sunday evening. It's more low-key, a little briefer. 
So that's what I want this to feel like, and I feel like it does. So I'm glad to be here in this sort of living room, as it were, together with you now. Um, Sir Walter Scott, he's uh, the poet laureate of Scotland, and or perhaps if not the poet laureate, I think he's just um, maybe the literate, literate, literate laureate of Scotland. There are statues of him everywhere in Edinburgh, and he basically invented the historical fictional novel. Um, and he was quite wealthy and wrote, wrote a lot of books and had a huge, he was known for his huge estate near the borders, the lowlands in Scotland, near the, the North uh, English border, and near Melrose, Scotland. And he, you can still go there to his house. If you ever go to Scotland, if you go to Edinburgh, if you're in the lowlands, go visit his house. It's incredible. You can look it up online. He was known for his library within that house. He had thousands of beautiful volumes, no paperbacks back then, tons of beautiful bound, uh, hardbound volumes. And he was on his deathbed, and his son apparently was kneeling beside his deathbed. And as he was nearing the end, he said, son, bring me the book. And his son said, dad, are you, go- are you slipping from me? Are you delusional? You have, which book? You have thousands of books. And he said, son, there's only one book. Bring me the book. And of course, his son went away immediately and fetched the Bible. Um, and that's really what this psalm, Psalm 1, is about. It's about the, the fact that there are many books in the world, but there's one book that is peerless. There's one book that isn't just information, it's living, and it takes us by faith. Through the power of the Spirit, it takes us to the living God. It shows us what he is like in a way that nature cannot. If you read Psalm 19, nature can show us lots of things about God's power, but what it can't show us is what God has done for us in Christ. And that is something that the book shows us, and it takes us to him, and we'll talk about that. This psalm, Psalm 1, is the gateway to the only songbook of God's people, the Psalter, the Psalms, the 150 Psalms. It is the portal through which we must enter to get into a life that's filled with everything from praise to mourning to everything in between, to everything that life offers. There's a psalm and a song for God's people for every occasion. This is the gateway to that, and it talks to us about the blessed man. What is he like? What is he like? So let's look at that together as we just literally just walk through this psalm, this short psalm, six verses together. What what does this, what what is the portal to a life of blessedness, of deep and abiding satisfaction and substance, which is what we all want? What what does that look like? How do we apprehend it? The psalm tells us. If you if you look in verse one, there's that memorable opening, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It's a triple parallelism. What's the second? Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that parallelism, it increases in intensity each time. First of all, it said, blessed is the man who doesn't do these three things. He doesn't uh, walk along with sinners, nor stand in their path, nor sit down and dwell with or abide with them. So you can see a man who, he's not doing these three things that sinners do. He's not walking along the path with them. He's not standing with them in their company. And he's not sitting and essentially pitching his tent and abiding with them. And that's actually an insight right away into what sin does to us. Is it, it draws us in slowly. If you'll notice, first you're walking and you think, hey, I can get away at any time. And then you're standing, you're static in the company of sinners. And then before you know it, you're sitting, you're comfortable you're locked in. And that's for all of us who know what sin is, right? For all of us who know what sin is, that's what sin 
does, we get more and more comfortable with it. And we start by saying, it, the, you, never, you don't usually start sin all in. Usually it's a little, and you basically start by saying, I can get out of this, I'm master of this at any point, it's no big deal. Um, but before long, it's like we're a frog in a kettle of cold water, and we don't feel that it's, there's a flame under it, and it's a gradual, it's a gradual heating, and before long, before we know it, we're cooked. And that's the picture that this gives us of not the blessed man, of not the blessed man. You have things called, speaking of the gradual nature of sin, gateway drugs. They sort of, they start small, whether it's alcohol or, or pot or something else. And I'm not, this, is, this isn't a sermon about <laughs> whether or not we should become a state that legalizes marijuana. Forget about it. But all I'm saying is there are gateway drugs, right? They get you into what? More serious, life-destroying drugs. Um, so alcoholism, it doesn't normally start, well, you don't start off going from a teetotaler to 13 whiskey sours before breakfast, you know, like, like uh, Ernest Hemingway did toward the end of his life. Um, but you start with one. And, then, and again, this isn't me saying don't drink, okay? I, I drink. Um, um, it's not to say you should. But, uh, but it starts with one, and then it's one more. That's the way that sin, that's the way that sin works. Um, our friend, our, our dear friend who was in a, a long-term affair, you know how it started? You start with sex. You started with a compliment to her hair or her, or her outfit. Okay, that's how, that's how it starts, and that's what this gives us a picture of, okay? Um, if you look at verse two, and you spent a little time considering verse one, blessed is the man who doesn't keep company with these sorts of people, right? Um, who doesn't get drawn in. Uh, but rather, it says, but, that's an antithetical parallel sign, okay? But instead, he's gonna be this way, different, right? But instead, and what are we expecting? He's gonna keep company with these sorts of people, the righteous, the just, with God himself. That's what we're expecting. Doesn't keep company with these sorts of people in verse one. Verse two, he keeps company rather with the godly. That's not what we get, though. It's a surprise. What we get is a surprise. It sets us up to expect a person, but what we get instead is we get God's law. But rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And in fact, the words in this verse, he delights in the law and he meditates on it, actually encourage us to think of the law, this word of God, as, as, as personal, even as a person, which is interesting. We don't normally think of God's law we think of it as do's and don'ts, but that's not what, that's not the picture that this is giving us here. It's a really rather, this is the gateway into relationship with God. How do I know that? Well, delight, delight, he delights in it. That's a lover word. And the word meditates is actually a word used of lions or beasts growling, okay? It's the same word in the Hebrew. Um, so it's really saying, blessed is the man who delights like he does in a lover in God's law. And he actually mutters the law. He's talking about it. Uh, whispering sweet nothings about it. He's obsessed with it under his breath, just constantly day and night. That's, what, that's lover language. Um, Psalm 119, 47 and 48 has a similar language. It says, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So I worship your commandments, I love your commandments, I delight in your commandments, I am obsessed with your commandments. It's not normally how we think of God's law, but it's what the Bible is teaching us about the very word of God, okay? Um, what, 
the word used here isn't scripture or Old New Testament, it's law. And that's really at this, at this point when the Psalms are being written what the scripture was. It was the, the law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Um, and so that law provides the foundation for the rest of the scriptures. It's what the prophets and the writings and the New Testament, the new covenant of Christ is built on. And so there's a sense in which one, um, that law, because it's the foundation, stands for the rest of the scriptures. And so this man, he loves God's word, and he knows that it's more than just, it's more than just do's and don'ts. It's the gateway to a relationship with God himself, into a love relationship that we were built for, that we search for in all sorts of other love interests that become idols in our lives. I think this is the key to a life of satisfaction and substance. Um, but it's also saying that all of God's word whether it's prophets, wisdom, history, gospels, letters, it's all got the force of law. All of God's word has the force of law, even the prophets, even the writings, okay? It's all perfect and it's all required of us to keep. Okay, that's another thing that this is saying and that's what Jesus said, okay? Jesus said that most forcefully. Um, Surely I tell you, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's law Will not, not a jot or a tittle, not a stroke until all is fulfilled, okay, in Matthew 5, 17. Um, so that's what we're getting, this picture here. Um, I had, we, we had some, some of us had time in someone's house, uh, in John's house actually, a few weeks ago with, with a Jewish man, very respectful. Uh, he loves God's word, and he was talking about how, he's, he's a committed Orthodox Jew, and he was talking about how God's, um, he said, the law is really what the men focus on. The women kind of focus on the prophecy and the other stuff, but the law is what, the Mosaic law is what the men focus on. But Jesus in this psalm really are saying something else, which is that all of God's word is binding. All of God's word has, has a force, a binding force on us, okay? And so in the, in the, in the, uh, the blessed man knows that and loves that, which is interesting, and it presents a challenge to us, okay? Um, I want to talk on this note just to get real practical for a second on um, just time in God's word. We are, we are shown that the life of blessedness is one of delighting in God's law and just meditating on it, muttering about it, talking about it, thinking on it, praying over it day in and day out, night in and night out. So what, what does that look like um, as we stand on the end of this year that I'm giving so much thanks for, God's done so much, and as we're peering out over 2018, we don't know what it's going to hold but we are praying that it's, it's, a, it's a year of walking through God's word together. If you don't, or even if you do, but if you, if you haven't ever had a regular time with the Lord, I just want to break that down a bit and put some handles on it. And of course, we'll be talking about it more and more um, as, as the year goes on. But hopefully you'll start this process with us of, of downloading the Read Scripture app and walking through the scriptures with us this year. So meditate. It's more than just reading. It's sinking down into. It's spending time in God's word, prayerfully, it's, it's, it's listening. Um, oftentimes, when I read through big chunks of the scriptures, if I'm doing a, a, year, a, a year through the Bible or through the Bible twice in a year, I'll listen to it. That depends partly on how you learn. But don't just think it has to be the same way, Bible on a, on a desk and that's it. It can be that way, um, and there ought to be some aspect of that, but I listen to the large chunks and then I focus in on maybe the original language and take a verse or two or three. Uh, at my desk and spend more time meditating on that. But um, a couple apps that will help if you want to listen as you 
uh, as you walk or, or, or if you're in your office or um, in a chair or in the quiet of the morning or late at night or if you're driving to work even. I used to do this when I would, I would listen to the Bible twice a year just walking to and from New College where I, where I uh, wrote my thesis, 30-minute walk each time. And that 30 minutes a day got me through the Bible twice in a year. So the ESV has a great audio version of their, and they have a great reader of their Bible. You can just get online and, and download that. Faith Comes by Hearing. I think their app is Bible.is. Bible.is is another, uh, Faith Comes by Hearing. It's another great, you can choose any translation, and it's kind of dramatized, if I remember right. So it's kind of fun to listen to. You have like sheep's bleeding in the background in certain scenes and things like that. Um, read it aloud. So these are just some variations, some suggestions to you as to how you might mix it up and how you might do this, okay? And you, you have to find your own sweet spot, the way that you and the Lord work together for you to spend time with him. Uh, reading through his word, but you could read aloud. That helps me a lot. It's adding another sense, the, the, the auditory sense to your reading. Um, I'm very auditory. The ancients pretty much just read, as far as we know, at least the Greeks uh, and, the, and the Romans, aloud. We, we, most of us read silently, almost exclusively, right? But uh, there's a scene in the Confessions of St. Augustine where he, he says, I walked up on uh, Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan in Italy, in his study, and he was reading a book, but he wasn't making any sound. And Augustine said, I was amazed. What? That's because the ancients were used to reading aloud. Okay, but that, that was sort of a turning point into modernity right there, or pre-modernity, where um, this man was reading to himself. So reading aloud, the ancients understood, there's just one more facet of your understanding that's being employed. So try reading, and that's another reason for having, if you can... If you can etch out a space, sometimes the space is your car, and don't read aloud in your car, for goodness sakes, while you're driving. Maybe you're listening, but if you can find us, you don't really want other people probably to hear you reading aloud, or maybe you read with your spouse, or your roommate, or whomever, but reading it aloud, reading it with your family, um, praying the scriptures. A lot of times, my best prayer time is simply just my reading through. What I'm, as, I, as I meditate on the word and I'm reading it, I turn that into a prayer, as it were, and it becomes a prayer. So don't just feel like it has to be Bible time, and then prayer time. They don't have to be separate. They should commingle. Um, two things I say when I'm discipling folks and talking with folks about this is go wide and go narrow. So I always try to read through the Bible at least once a year, baseline. Get the narrative arc of Scripture. Again, in my personal life, aside from choosing to form the habit of spending that devotional time with God and His Word and in prayer daily, the, 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 there's been probably no thing that's helped me grow more in the Lord than reading through the Bible at least once a year just to get the sense of what God has done and is doing and will do in history. And then you can dive into, you can understand, it just gives you a worldview. And as we do it year by year, my mentor has done it for 45, 50 years, and he has, and that's just his baseline, not aside, aside from his sermon prep and, 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 and other separate studies and things like that. And don't be intimidated. That 13 minutes a day is all that's required to read through the Bible in a year. 13 minutes a day. That's why a 30-minute walk, I got through it twice in a year. Um, so whether you read aloud or quietly or, or silently or, or listen, go wide, but then go narrow too. Pick, ask the Lord, hey, put a couple, one or two verses on my heart as I'm reading through this and help me just to meditate on those throughout the day. Pray them, think about them, talk about other people with them, perhaps other people in this body. Um, when I pray, let's talk about praying. Brief. Oh, and last thing, on meditation, one of the chief, I tell my students this when I teach, when I teach Hebrew, um, 
One of the chief benefits of reading in another language, but certainly reading the scriptures in another language, let's say in Hebrew or Greek in the original, yes, it's great because you can know what, you know, the epistle of verb what actually the text is saying. But I think one of the chief benefits is what? It just slows you down. It strikes you differently because you don't know it. You haven't memorized it because it's not in English and it hits you differently, but also it slows you down. And the benefits of going slowly slowly, even if it's through a couple verses that stand out to you that the Holy Spirit puts on your heart as you spend that time in, with him. So valuable. So valuable. Um, so I, I, would, I would encourage a wide and a narrow approach daily if you can. It doesn't have to take more than 15, 20 minutes and then spend that time in your car on the way to work praying. Or if you, if you work at home or you're, you're a mom, or you, you're mom and you work at home and you have two jobs because one of them is being a mom, <laughs> um, then just find that time. It's so important. And we as pastors here want to help you with that. And as your parish leaders want to help you with that. Um, as, as far as prayer, and then we'll move on through the rest of the chapter. Um, find, Jesus talks about the virtues of finding a prayer closet. I think the important thing about that is we, we're not going to pray honestly, typically, unless we know that no one else is listening to us. And, it's, and a lot of times you can think, it's hard to think articulately in your head. A prayer, because it's just kind of muddy and muddled, and when I do that, I tend to fall asleep, especially if my head's bowed. Don't bow your head when you're praying. I mean, if, you're, if that's your jam and it works for you, do it. But, man, I think a lot of prayer times are ruined and lost by getting on our knees, bowing the head. Before I know it, I'm, there's a puddle of drool on my chair. You know? I, you know, pray out loud. Pray with your eyes open. Walk. Close the door. Argue with God. Have a prayer chair. Sit in it. Don't kneel. Man, when I bow my head, my, the blood goes to my head, and I'm done. So experiment with that. Have a journal at hand. Have an exhaust journal or a notepad or a, a, a thing of sticky notes where you can, any, as you're praying, inevitably what will happen is the affairs of the day and Satan and his minions will send distractions your way. That anything but you praying, anything but you spending time with the living God. And um, have an exhaust pad where you can just write, jot out a word or a line that's, oh, okay, I'll remember that, but I'm not going to focus on that now. That's for later. For now, it's to focus on God, his word, me and him. What do I have to confess? What can I praise? Pray, who can I pray for? What can I thank God for? How can I praise? And just walking through that, even if it's five minutes a day, it will change your life. There's nothing that's more important. A few more resources, and then, and then on to verse 3. The ESV Study Bible. Um, ESV is the, the, the version of the translation I recommend and that we have here. There are other good versions, but that's what we endorse um, the ESV Study Bible is a cheap study Bible. You can get expensive copies of it and calfskin and stuff, but you can get a hardback for 30 bucks, and it's basically a seminary education in a Bible. 150 pages at the end of um, information, of essays from, that just run the gamut, that are super, super helpful. And the great, great notes, great maps, great introductions to all the books. So I would highly encourage you, get an ESV Study Bible as a help if you don't have one. Um, God willing, this year, I've been talking about it for some time, but I feel like we're poised. Hopefully in the fall, we'll start equipping classes. Those will help you, again, figure out where you are in the Bible, be able to understand the different genres, and so on and so forth. Um, it takes, they say, 21 days to form a habit. So January might be the hardest, but if you can persevere through the month, um, it becomes habitual. It becomes, for me, the sweetest time, partly because of the Lord, partly because of my coffee, when the two are combined. Something glorious happens. Um, I mean, don't ask me any questions, you know, before I get my coffee. My wife has a shirt that says, first coffee. It's like, first period coffee. It's like, um, don't talk to me until I get my coffee. But that time with the Lord is so precious and so foundational. Um, okay, so 
on that note, into verse 3, we get this image of what the blessed man is like, okay? What, what is he like? He's like a tree firmly planted, okay? Planted by streams of water. Notice, who's doing the planting? Is the blessed man planting himself? Is he a go-getter? No. He's like a tree that someone else has planted. Who is that someone else? God. God, when we spend time in his word, he is, he is planting us exactly where he wants us, placing us in a place. may not look like prosperity to you or the world, but a place of success and prosperity in his time. He gets his hands on you as your good maker and king and redeemer in a way that nothing else will allow him to do through his word, okay? He plants us. It's passive. We're not doing it. He is the gardener of our souls. He is the shepherd of, of our lives. And note the Edenic language here. He's a tree, this tree bears fruit in time or in season. This is Edenic language. It's calling back as the, as the portal to the songbook of God's people. At this juncture in the scriptures, what it's doing is it's calling back to the way things were and were supposed to be. And it's saying the sin and rebellion against our king that have ruined us and ruined the world, the way back to that, the way toward restoration inside of us and around us as we're made new, the environment around us is made new, our workplaces, our homes, the places we visit, all sorts of places, right? Wherever we go, we carry God's presence with us. Those become identic once again. And Christ, God through Christ and his work works his recreation through this. This is foundational through our meditating on the word of God day and night. Without this, this that won't happen. This is the portal to life with God. Um, and notice the fruit is being born what? All the time. No. In season. Okay? And the, the Hebrew word is in its time. It's slow. The growth of a tree, it's rooting. It's becoming fruitful. It's a slow process. It takes time. It's largely invisible. But in its perfect time, like that scripture we read from Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, what? Not immediately, not right after we had sinned and broken the world, thousands of years later, but in God's perfect time, when the time was ripe, when the time was full, God sent his son. That's what God will do with you as you abide in his word. He will make, he, it's a promise. He will make you fruitful in time, in his time, okay, in his time. Its leaf does not wither. Uh, so notice the blessed man the implication here is that, and certainly in the verses that follow, he does, he's not exempted from suffering. He's not exempted from the hard conditions of this life, from pain. In fact, a lot of times the blessed man endures them more because he's God's own and God cares about him and he's disciplining the blessed man or woman, okay? And because he loves us and we're his children in Christ. And um, it goes through droughts too. This tree also goes through droughts just like anyone else, but what? His leaf does not wither. Why? Because his roots go down deep into the source, into God's word, which is the portal to knowing God himself through his spirit by faith. So, and that, that is how our, our, our leaves remain green, even in drought. We have that deep, deep root. And it's getting, it's getting nourishment from, from the stream. Um, where does the growth happen? Where does the fruit come from? Again, those roots. It comes from those roots. That's the most important part about a tree. A tree can look great on the outside, but if there's not serious subterranean stuff stretching out, 
the, the tree's done for, especially when a wind hits or a drought hits. And what this is telling us is, is get this, guys, if nothing else. Get this. Um, what this is telling us is the most important part about this tree is the stuff that nobody sees. It's the stuff that nobody sees. It's the invisible things. That time in the word and in prayer, nobody is going to see it. Nobody on the outside. But every part of your life and of all that touch you will be affected by that invisible time. That is where your strength will come from. That is where your sap will come from. That is where your roots will grow and you will be rooted and the fruit will in its time bloom and the leaf will not wither. Um, And I could talk for a long time about men that I have followed and women that have been in my life. But I typically am mentored by men. But I've had a a lot, some women who've, man, made such an impact on me. Um, They've, without exception, all been people of the word and of this quiet place. Without exception. There's a reason for this. It doesn't work, this growing in the Lord, unless we have this. So that's one reason I wanted to preach, you know, just sort of an ad hoc sermon on this text. And in light of the fact that we're going to be walking through this together, this, this, this very word of God together. It's, it's going to be an adventure. I think it's going to be so good for our church. I'm so excited to do it with you. I want to encourage you to make it a habit, even if it's 13 minutes a day. Um, this is where our power comes from. This is where our character comes from. Um, what a man is, he is on his knees, is one thing I've heard. And you could say the same thing for what a man is, he is on his knees, as he prays, as he spends time in God's word, it's the, it's the roots. It's the stuff that nobody sees, but it makes a difference. Um, and what is, that, what is the last line of verse three says? And whatever he does, he prospers. And whatever he does, he prospers. Um, now this, actually, the same exact line um, is in Joshua chapter one, which is a transition point from the law of Moses to the second part of the scriptures, which is called the prophets. So in the Hebrew Bible, Joshua was not a, it wasn't known as a history as much as it was called a former prophet. And then the latter prophets are the prophets we think about. And then the third piece of the Hebrew Bible was the writings. So you had the law, the prophets, and the writings. That was the whole Old Testament. Okay? So Joshua, this is the beginning of the writings, this Psalm 1. And it mentions this tree and that he, this man, this blessed man, he's like a tree. And what is he, what, what's he like? He meditates day and night on God's law. And in whatever he does, what's it, what, what will the result of that be? Whatever he puts his hand to, whatever he does, he will have success. He will prosper. Joshua, it's the same thing at this transition point uh, from the law to the prophets in Joshua chapter 1. Right after Moses has died and, he, and God says, get up, Joshua, my servant. You're going to lead my people now. Moses is gone, but I'm still here. And what? What are you to be like? You are to meditate on my word day and night. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left, but fixate on my word and you will prosper. Don't fear, whatever you do, you will have success. Same, same exact words, okay? What is happening? It's clear that at the, um, at the critical sort of, the scholars sometimes use the word seams, at the places where the big patches of cloth that are the sections of the Bible come together, so where the law meets the prophets, where the prophets meet the writings. So in Joshua, here in the Psalm, beginning of Joshua, beginning of the Psalms, you have this focus on meditating on God's word day and night. And in whatever you do, you will prosper. And notice at the beginning of the Bible, there's this focus, this extreme focus on God's word. God speaks with his word and creates all things. And then in Genesis 2, 
what, is, what, what condition does God give to, uh, to Adam and Eve? He says, obey my word, keep to my word, and be in relationship with me thereby, and everything's gonna be, per- everything's gonna be great. Okay, there's this focus on his word. And then at the end of the Old Testament, what do we have? In Malachi, the last prophet before the great silence, in chapter four, verse four, it says, um, it says, remember the law of Moses and do all that, is, all that is written therein, okay? So at these junctures, beginning, middle sections, end, you have this focus on God's word and on meditating on it day and night, delighting in it, not swerving to the right or to the left. So this is what the Bible hangs on. It's what the Bible hangs on. Um, and then at the end of the Bible, so in the beginning of the New Testament, the New Covenant, you have John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus himself. And at the end of the Bible, Re- Revelation 22, you have obey whatever is in this book. And anyone who doesn't or who changes it in the slightest way, the curses will be on him that are, that are there for covenant breakers, okay? Um, so you ha- this, is, this, is, this is huge. There's nothing bigger than this. And then briefly skipping through these next few verses and then taking, taking us to the reason for this, this beautiful psalm, Jesus. Um, look at verse four with me. It's brief. It's a very brief verse. We've just focused for a while on this tree, this, this righteous man. He's like a tree um, in all this description. And then verse four is brief. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. It's a very short verse. And the image there is not of a tree. A tree is rooted and heavy and substantial and takes time to grow and bears fruit eventually. But the wicked are the opposite. The wicked are like uh, when you get grain and you rub it in your hand or you thrash it, okay, all the heavy stuff that's edible in the grain falls because it's heavier. And all the light stuff, it's like the kernel of a, of a piece of popcorn, like the, like the bit around the kernel of a popcorn, the sort of sheath or the bit around corn, um, uh, the husk, it, it, uh, it's light and insubstantial. And when wind hits both, when wind hits the wheat and the chaff, which one blows away? The chaff blows away, but the wheat falls because the wheat has substance. The wheat is what has, is, is the blessed man in a sense, that he's the tree. He's the one that's been soaking in God's word and, and knowing God and being with him face to face. And he is made more and more and more real like Pinocchio, from a, a, a wooden doll to a real boy, knowing God makes us heavy, it makes us weighty, it makes us substantial, it makes us real, it gives us gravitas. Whereas being detached from God, it's like a, it's like a tree uh, branch being cut off, and it just dries up and gets more and more porous, and eventually it just it blows away. And so right here we have this brief verse about something. It's brief because it's, it's evidencing for us what it's like. It's... It'll get blown away when the first trial comes, and when the judgment comes, certainly, um, it'll get blown away. Um, and so, and that, that's what we get at the end of this, at the end of this chapter. Um, verse five, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Again, that implies that both the righteous and the wicked will be judged. Both the blessed man and those who don't abide in God's word day and night will be judged. But, but what does it imply? The wicked will not stand. He'll get blown away by God's just judgment, but the righteous will endure. 
on our own virtue, on our own merit, heavens no. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But there's a difference. One has weight and rootedness in God's word. The other, not. With a puff of wind, with the glance of God, is blown away. Um, And whether we like it or not, that judgment is coming like a freight train. Um, And notice, too, that last uh, line in verse 5, nor sinners nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. Again, the implication is that there is a congregation for the blessed man and those who are righteous who tap into God's word by faith through his spirit, okay? Um, there is a fellowship. We're not doing this alone. We gather around God and his word. But for the sinner, he's alone, like a lone reed. He's, he's isolated. Sin, that's one of the things sin does. It isolates us. And in the judgment, the sinner will stand alone. He has no, no one else around him. And C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce gives a great picture of this where those that are in hell, what are they doing? They're not congregating around one another and loving each other and sharing burdens. Rather, they're moving farther and farther away from each other constantly, more and more alone, all alone. That's what sin does. And when we're in the midst of sin, that's what Satan wants us to think is that, hey, we're all alone and I shouldn't tell anybody because I'm the only one dealing with this and how terrible, and so it isolates us even more. And that's what sin does. And the judgment is the ultimate sort of eventuation of that. Um, And then this last verse here, and let me just say this, I pledge to a few of you, and and, and in good faith, and I I think this is a good thing, to talk more about our, to promote more our Sunday gatherings and our our times where we gather throughout the week as parish families. The parish gathering once a week, that's once a week, that's to be a baseline for spending life together as families, being known, knowing each other, and folding our neighbors and our coworkers into that life together. Um, that's what happens. This congregation of those that, have, that are righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the alien righteousness of another whose name is Jesus Christ, which I'm finishing with, okay? Um, that is what this is for, Christ has called us to be a body, to be a family. He has made us such by his blood. And um, that is such a crucial part of our life, of our rootedness, of our fruitfulness. Not going it alone, not doing it alone. We're not supposed to, but being part of a body together. This regular time together on Sundays, throughout the week, uh, baseline once in our parish gatherings, in our neighborhood parishes, but then just sharing life together. And most people don't have that. I think we who have it take it for granted but most people don't have that, and so inviting those that are lonely and lost and in their sin into this family of God um, is something that we want to be want to be about. Um, and then you finishing up, uh, the Lord, verse six, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Um, C.S. Lewis, in the weight of glory, he says, "Someone said to me the other day, the important thing is what we think of God." And he said, "By God, it is not." The important thing is not so much what we think of God as, to what, as compared to what he thinks of us. What does God think of us when he looks on you? What does he see? And he sees with true eyes. What does he see? And that's what this psalm is picking up on. The Lord knows, not this man knows the way of the Lord. He does. But more importantly, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word knows is an intimate verb that's talking about relationship. In other words, the Lord has relationship with the blessed man, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ, which this, which this psalm 
connects us to, which I want to finish with now, because I said in the beginning that Psalm 1 was the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. But actually, that was only a partial truth. And I tell my kids, a partial truth is, well, I don't say this exactly. A partial truth is a total lie. That's not, that's not true. Don't quote me there. But anyway, that was a partial truth. Psalm 1 is, is the gateway to the Psalter, but not alone. It is to be read with Psalm 2, and together with Psalm 2 is the gateway to the Psalter. And there are a few reasons for this. One, the rest of the Psalms from verse, in this first set of books in the Psalms, from chapter 3 onward, have titles, which are part of actually the holy writ of Scripture. That's, that's part of God's word. The numbering, the chapter numbers are not part of the original word, but the titles are. And, and uh, cha- uh, Psalms 1 and 2 don't have titles, okay? So that kind of pairs them. Another thing that pairs them if, is if you look in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So that word meditates shows up at the beginning of Psalm 2 as well. It links the two psalms. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They're grumbling under their breath against God about how to overthrow him. It's the same word in the Hebrew, plot. So it's the same word that shows up at the beginning of both psalms. And most convincingly, and every scholar shows, you know, that's commentating on these chapters notes this, there's a, a literary frame at the beginning of Psalm 1 and at the end of Psalm 2. Not at the end of Psalm 1, at the end of Psalm 2. It's called a literary inclusio. It includes everything between it. It's a frame. And it, it is the word blessed. Look at the way the word verse, uh, chapter 1 starts. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then look how chapter 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, that's a way of saying, you, these, to be understood, these two songs have to be read and understood and sung together. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? Psalm 2 is all about how the earth, in, with all of its power and wealth and wisdom, shakes its fist at God and says, we can do it better. We are against you, God. And what is God's answer? In Psalm 2, we're told, God's answer is a person. It's a king that will come from the line of David that he will set on his throne, and everyone who's with him wins and is part of the process of the renewal of creation. And everyone that's against him loses and will be destroyed like, iron, like a pot, a clay pot that's struck with an iron rod, okay? Um, and who is, the, who is this man? Who is this king? Well, the rest of scripture bears out the fact that this king, this king that will come from David that will rule over the nations with a rod of iron is King Jesus. He's King Jesus. He is the king that is God's solution to the restoration of all things. And the key to reading Psalm 1 is this fact, Psalm 2. They're to be read together. It's that the blessed man is not me, standing in my own efforts. The blessed woman is not you. There's a reason that it's translated man, okay? Um, it's, It's Christ that this is talking about. He alone is the one who delights in God with all that he is, with his actions, with his mind, with his emotions. He came and lived a life in full love. The first command, love the Lord your God with all that you are all the time. Have we ever done that? Have we ever loved our neighbors ourselves? And yet we have this man who comes, he's a king, but he serves. And he loves God from the heart, his father. And he is a man of the word who meditates on the word of God day and night. And 
he loves us so much that he lays his life down for us. Um, and what, what we learn from this, so many things, but one of the major takeaways is that the point, it's the point the psalm has been making all along, I've been trying to show. The point is not a book. The point of Psalm 1 is, um, is not focusing on a book and stopping with that book. It's meditating on the law of God, which has complete and utter force for our lives. It is true. It does create life. Veering from it will create death, and we have all veered from it. But the point of this book is that Jesus, the point of, of loving the law is that it leads us to the lawgiver, and it, this word leads us to the living word, Jesus Christ. The point of reading through the Bible, the point of spending time in God's word is not a data dump. It's not a data crunch. It's not more information. It's to know God and how much he loves us and what he's done for us through Jesus. This law of God leads us to Christ by faith in what he's done for us. Um, my, uh, one of my old professors who's He's a, he's a Jewish man, Alan Mandelbaum, and he, uh, he did the translations of some Bantam translations of Virgil's Aeneid and Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, which we were reading at the time in class. And he's this old world scholar that he knows 10 languages, and he's, um, he, he is just, his library is vast, and he's not a believer. I, I, I think he's, he's not a believer. He's an, he's an old Jewish man. Um, but he's, he was talking about these classic books, Homer, Homer's works and Virgil's works and Dante's works and Shakespeare. And, and, he, and he was talking to us about the Bible, and he kind of asked us, have you, any of you read the Bible all the way through? And I don't even know if anyone raised their hand at that point, a bunch of 20-year-olds. And he looked, and he, he just kind of said under his breath, like, it's a pretty good book. And this is a man that's not a believer, but he understands as a man who is so well-read and has read the classics, there's nothing like this book. Go get me the book, son. Which book, Dad? You have thousands. There's nothing like this book. A book that is living and active, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that literally it cuts to our soul and spirit, and it takes us to the living God in a way no other book can. And it shows us God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the blessed man who alone brings us into blessing. You cannot have a satisfied, growing, fruitful life in the Lord and to know Christ and to grow in him without spending time in this thing. This takes us to him, and that's the point. He stood in front of the Pharisees in John 5, in 30, verses 39 and 40, Jesus did. And he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But what? It is they that point to me. It is they that point to me. And yet they ended up crucifying him. And he used that very crucifixion to open up a portal to life for us, to save us. He is the one the scriptures point to. He is the one that has kept the law in a way that we never could. The law convicts us, but he kept it and then died for we, the convicted. And he says, and he beckons to all, just come to me. And that's what a daily devotional time is about. That's what a Bible read-through is about, to see how it points to him, to come to him, to lay our burdens down, to enjoy him, to be made like him, to be made substantial, to be rooted, that in time, in God's time, we will bear fruit and we will have success in what we do. It won't look like the world's success necessarily, but it will make us solid and substantial and what? Able to stand in the judgment. There's a, um, 
I'll close with this. I've tell, told it before, but it's too good not to tell again. There's um, the fact of pioneering through the prairies was that they went through, these pioneers, as they passed through the breadbasket in the middle of the United States, they would, as they were moving from east to west, they would pass through these vast seas of grain and wheat and high grass, really, high grass. So they were uncultivated, so most of them, so they was just high grass, right? And when you, a lot, prairie fires would ravage. And the problem with prairie fires was that if you were in a sea of high grass, you couldn't get away, and they would spread, they would just burn. All the, all the fuel that they're eating up is the grass, and so there's nowhere to, there's nowhere to hide. And so if you saw, if you were a pioneer journeying through this high grass, this sea of grass where literally you can't see anything else on the horizon, it's just like an ocean. You see a flicker of fire in the distance, it's, it strikes horror in you because you know you're finished. It's just a matter of time, and it travels a lot faster than you can, especially with your wagons and your kids and your donkeys and your possessions. And so it'll just burn you up. So one of the things that the pioneers learned to do is that they would have what's called a burn circle. They saw a flicker of fire in the distance, they would burn out a wide circle. They would create their own fire. And then that grass would be gone, and they would stand in that dirt. As the fire came through, it would, wouldn't have anything around them to burn up to eat. And so it would pass them by, and they'd be safe standing in the burn circle. One of the things that this psalm leads us to is that idea, the fact that Jesus Christ is the burn circle for us. Why can, we, why can we, the righteous, stand in the judgment? We're not, I'm not righteous. I'm full of sin, but he was, and he took my place on the cross. He was able to stand before God, pure and perfect on his own record, and he was burned up. He became the burn circle for me. So how does this psalm end, Psalm 2? It says, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And what? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To hide in Christ, to hide in the burn circle, it's that safe place. It's the place of growth. It's the place of becoming substantial, of becoming real, of being satisfied. It's the key to life. So I'm looking forward to knowing Christ better with you through his word this year and seeing that weave itself its way into the warp and woof of our character as a congregation as he makes us more and more like him. Let's pray.